A reading from Mark 11, 1-7. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. This is a wonderful story, but I'm not sure I've ever plumbed the depths of it. But one of the things that I want to ask you, Nathan, is how does Jesus, Jesus is actually being prophetic here. He is explaining what will happen before it even happens. And I like to compare that to my hiking the Appalachian Trail. And oftentimes, because I'd never been on the trail in that place before, I don't know what's coming next. And I have plenty of stories where what came next was totally unexpected and I had to adjust to it. That's kind of normal, in a way, normal human knowledge. We get up in the morning, we have the plan for the day, but the day has a plan for itself. And sometimes your plan for the day just goes up in smoke. Here, though, Jesus um, is demonstrating a power that very few of us have. And that's what I think is so interesting and wonderful about it. So he can actually point to a series of things that his followers are going to go and execute. But it's already in place. It's already going to happen. The cult is there. The people object. And then they they say, well, the master uh, wants it, and therefore they, they relinquish the cult, even though it's not uh, the disciples to take. And I just, I just want to see what your comment on this quality that Jesus has, because I think to understand it, you have to understand the entire, uh, well, most of the Gospel of John, because the why this is possible is revealed in that Gospel and not necessarily exactly in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, you know, I on this whole thing about him sending the disciples to, you know, find the donkey and everything. Um, I've had a lot of, you know, people wonder over the years about well, why is this in here? Why is it so detailed? How did it work? How did he know it was going to be there? How did the people know? And my conclusion really is, I don't know. <laughs> he seems to have something arranged that's not um, the origins of which we just are just not in the story for whatever reason. They're not included in the gospel. So um, I, I'm not doing a good job of answering your question. I, I, I tend not to focus on the logistics. I, um, even though the gospel spends so much time describing it. So there must be something there. I guess I'll learn when I get to glory. What, what I do focus on though is, you know, the events, obviously the triumphal entry as we call it. And, you know, once he gets this, this, 
beast, which, you know, I love in Matthew's gospel, it, it actually uses the Zechariah prophecy phrase, beast of burden, beast of burden. And my mind goes to a couple places when I hear that phrase, beast of burden. You know, why, in other words, why did he choose this animal instead of a horse, a war horse, you know? And there's the Solomon example of Solomon coming in as a king of peace, you know, on a humble animal. But that phrase, beast of burden, man, it's, it's, to me, it's an illustration of what would happen to Jesus. You know, just a few days later, he would be treated like a beast and he would carry the burden of the sins of the whole world. He would become the beast of burden. This, um, this king of kings and lord of lords who deserves to be seated on the throne of the entire universe became for us a beast of burden and how amazing and humble that is. And of course, the other thought that comes to my mind is the Rolling Stones song, which is really like the cry of, of the sinful human heart. I'll never be your beast of burden, right? I'll never be your beast of burden. That's what we say in our sin because we're selfish and we're prideful and we're arrogant. And we would never uh, humble ourselves to be somebody's beast of burden. Yet here's the King of Kings saying, I will be your beast of burden for you. I'll go to the cross on your behalf. Uh, never is a very dangerous word. Right. But uh, the two things that I, uh, when I mentioned the Gospel of John, it sort of answers the question of how this could be that we're talking about, uh, uh, of knowing something in advance. Uh, I think it actually is not uh, uh, setting it up beforehand. It, it's kind of represented where Jesus says time and again in the Gospel of John, my time has not yet come. It's the first instance of that is at the, marry in, uh, the marriage in Cana, uh, where he says that to everybody. But he repeats it time and again. And then finally, I think it's in the ninth chapter of John, uh, he says, my time has come. Uh, he's now in Jerusalem, I think, at that point or near it. But there's another thing here, and this is Jesus speaking in the fifth chapter of John. And he says this, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is repeated time and again of the inextricable kind of relationship that God ha uh, Jesus has to the Father. He's doing nothing on his own. So when these words come out, he's speaking from the perspective of God, who can look into the future and the past and everything else at the same time. And I, I just think that it, it just to see this as if uh, just an event is one thing, but to see it as the power of the Holy Spirit acting at that moment, giving the vision of what is going to happen to Jesus, uh, really explains a lot about the very nature of Jesus, the Son of God. I tend to react a little bit to all tons of attention being drawn to um, the donkey and how people got, how people knew and I appreciate the way you said it, Eric, about he, he does the will of the Father in heaven and there's this sort of sovereign plan unfolding. That's that's interesting to me, but I've I've been frustrated sometimes over the years when I hear Palm Sunday sermons that spend half their time on the stupid donkey, 
and how they get the donkey <laughs> and who these people were. I'm just like, you're missing the triumphal entry. Like, let's get to the point here. And I find it a little distracting. I don't know why there's so much. Anyway, I'm starting to repeat myself. But um, so whenever I do hear these these um, rabbit trails or donkey trails about the donkey, I'm like, I, I don't know. Let's let's move on to the uh, <laughs> let's move on to the entry. So that's that's a little bit of where I was coming from. But I I do I do find it interesting what you were saying about them the will of the father in heaven and all that stuff. But, well, it, it's, it's the gospels, uh, of, you know, I mean, especially the gospel of John, it, it's so different. The language is different. I mean, the, the, the way the story is told is different. Um, and it's just, I think it really helps us understand that, uh, while Jesus is one of us and that he came down to heaven, he's also, He's of God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it separates us out from the, the pack a little bit. That's all. Yeah. 